Boker Tov, we can still say that. Um, I, uh, I want to be Makir Tov to uh, Rabbi Fold uh, and his wonderful wife. Um, I know him on a uh, professional basis, but also in a personal basis. Um, and I'll tell you a very brief story. One of my kids uh, was born and we needed a mile. Okay, it was a little bit of a problem. It was going to be on Shabbos Pesach, okay, Holomo Pesach, and the weather it was approximately 101 degrees on that particular Shabbos. And Rabbi Fold walked from somewhere around Main Street approximately four to five miles to my house. And it was mamish 100 degree weather. It was, it was mamish 100 degrees, and I'll never forget, you know, praying to Hashem that he makes it, okay? And not only that he makes it, but he's okay, right? <laughs> so I hear a knock on the door, for Hashem, okay? It's Rabbi Full, and he says one word to me, seltzer. <laughs> he proceeded to drink perhaps a gallon of seltzer, which is very good because it kept him hydrated, and he did a wonderful job as usual. So uh, for all the good things he does, as Shari said that, but also personally for my family, um, I'd like to thank him. Also, I have to be Makir Tov to Yeshiva University and Albert Einstein College of Medicine. As was mentioned, four of my children um, went here, actually, not just me. Um, two of them graduated from Einstein. Um, and uh, it's been a long, long association. And they also went uh, to Eretz Yisrael and Yeshiva's there. And uh, I have to be Makir Tov to this wonderful institution and all the great things that it does in the world. So uh, thank you for all that. Um, for Shari Tzedek, and Professor Alevi, I also have had grandchildren, Baruch Hashem, born there, and Cain uh, Yerbu, as they say, and you should continue all the great things you do. And we also, the American Physicians Fellowship for Medicine Israel, actually go to Shari Tzedek, usually on our course once a year, and we do a drill in the emergency room at Shari Tzedek with Todd Zalut, who's chief of the ER, and Mati Ehrlichman, who's chief of the pediatric ER. So, call kabod lafem. You should no longer ever have to deal with the disaster, which we're going to be talking about today. Um, and that you do a great job. It's one of the best places in the world, and we need to learn a lot from it. But uh, we should not have any more of the things I'm going to be showing you. I just want to put into context for today what the matzah is in Eretz role and somewhat around the world. And we all need to be proud of what the Jews have done in Eretz role, specifically in the area of disaster preparedness. Um, we sit here in the United States and around the world and we don't usually have as many problems as have happened in Israel. And Israel just doesn't absorb them, it becomes a world leader and we're going to be talking about that in a moment. So, the types of this, you don't have to read every slide, this is just a long bunch of things which can happen. These are various types of disasters, many of them are man-made, but unfortunately some of them are not natural, um, they are acts of terror. Okay? And we'll be going through that. Um, here you can see the Haiti earthquake, which you'll hear more about, um, the tsunamis uh, in Japan, and also in the Far East, which the Far East one killed hundreds of thousands of people. Um, there's no lack of disasters around the world and the need for preparedness. You see Oklahoma, I was just there actually two weeks ago speaking to the uh, victims and the people who take care of them. Uh, Superstorm Sandy, I personally had nine feet of water in my house, so uh, things are unfortunately happening on a continuing basis that are disasters. Um, earthquakes are common around the world. There were actually three of them, three shots in Eretz Royal, Baruch Hashem, everything's okay. In the Galil, um, there were small tremors, but Israel is 
standing on an area which could have, God forbid, a massive earthquake. And we do prepare for that very carefully. Um, we could have a man-made disaster, not terrorism. This is a leak of a chemical in India, and you see 20,000 dead and 200,000 injured. This is uh, Japan, and a little child who's got to get decon. Think about what's going through this kid's head, looking at these uh, people from the moon uh, in spacesuits who are going to be taking care of him. These are acts of terrorism. The Mara building in Oklahoma. Um, Timothy McVeigh visited the building the day before and saw that there was a nursery in which 16 little babies were killed. And he said in his trial, it was collateral damage, sorry. Okay? But he knew about it. Right? The World Trade Center, obviously. Um, and it goes on. I'm a pediatrician. Just to put the focus on the kids, terrorists love to kill children and hurt them because they're our most precious commodity. And whether it's in Eretz world or around the world, um, unfortunately, incidents involve young adults, especially the Dolphinarium, etc., etc., um, and even young children in nursery schools and schools. Um, here we see a picture. This is not. Syria very, very well could be. This is Saddam Hussein who used chemical weapons on the Kurds. And these are women and children never who died in that situation. In Syria you just had thousands of people. The kids are much more prone to this because they're close to the ground and breathe faster. This is a young boy who was at the Boston Marathon. He's circled in blue there. Um, and uh, if you can see... Yeah, you can see that's him. You know who that is? That's a terrorist. Tarnayo. Okay, and this is his mother um, standing next to him and his sister. He was killed and his mother and sister had amputations, unfortunately. Okay, what about the current threats there at Israel? Just this morning, if you're listening to the news, Ismail Khania, the head of Hamas, Himach Shemo, part of the Muslim Brotherhood, announced that we should have the third intifada. He called on all Palestinians to rise up against the Jews. Okay, that was this morning. Okay, we have Hezbollah in the north with 200,000 rockets. That was from the Home Front Command a week ago. Hamas, as we said, with Qassams and Grabs in the south, and intifadas and West Bank issues happening now. Iran with all kinds of different chemical nuclear weapons, God forbid to be. Syria, right next door. Egypt right now is turned over a little bit and perhaps are doing things that are good for us, but don't be fooled. You have 85 million people who are not our friends. In Syria in particular has Russian weapons and the, all of Israel now is in the face of a potential missile attack. Are we ready? It's an interesting question. I'm not sure we'll ever know the answer. God forbid we should need to know. But Israel, of all countries, and I've been around the world with this, has done so much more than anyone else to protect its population. Um, you can see these little, uh, these are auto-injectors. That's to prevent people from having chemical weapon problems or antidotes. Israel has them for all age groups. The United States has one, only for adults. We use the Israeli experience to convince New York City EMS to use that even down to age two and lower, and we won because of Israel experience, helping us here. What about past events in Israel? What did Israel need to learn all this? We had all these suicide bombings, shouldn't have them. 
Sparrow, Moma Cafe, Dolphinarium, the Park Hotel. This is the children's bus bombing in Israel in 2003. Look at the prams and strollers. This is a bus filled with women and children. And that's the inside. Okay, we're here to talk a little bit about triage and the great work that Zaka does at the scene. What does triage mean? It means to sort the patients, evaluate the condition, and assign the priorities to get to the hospital. A lot of halakhic questions. Who do you send first? What if it's a Jew? What if it's a non-Jew? What if there are body parts? How do you take care of them? What's the overriding principle? Mass casualty events are what we're talking about during disasters. It means it overwhelms the ability to normally take care of people. And that creates a lot of decision-making, very tough decisions. Do you take the people who are almost dead and try to resuscitate them while letting three others stand by who will not make it unless you help them first? Very, very difficult. And people from MADA and Zaka uh, and the IDF and Africa Command deal with this every single day when they have these kind of events. Okay, the chaos in a mass chaos event is overwhelming and it's also dangerous. You can have a secondary bomb. You go into a disaster scene on Hanavim Street, there was a bomb and Zaka was there and there was a second bomb to blow up the first responders. And it worked. One of the Zaka members had severe injuries. So you have to be very cognizant of the heroes who are running into these situations and how should they behave. This is a slide from many, many years ago showing 200 mass casualty incidents. It's probably way higher than that at this point, all over Eretz Roll. Okay, and here's some of the casualties just from 2000 to 2006 during the Intifada. You can see that over 1,000 people killed. This is one a visit to Ziv Hospital during the Second Lebanon War. These are windows blown out on the fourth and fifth story from rockets landing on the ground. This is an area I went into, the ophthalmology ward, which has just been hit by a Kedusha, and it was destroyed. Thank God there was an underground hospital at this hospital, uh, in, actually in Naria, and uh, the patients had just been brought downstairs a half hour before. You had 30 patients who would have been killed never, if the preparations hadn't been made. This is, again, shrapnel injury. Now, Israel has now coated every single window in Israeli hospitals has a special coating so they won't shatter during a bombing. Let's look at steroids. An old slide. Steroids have been hit by something like 15,000 missiles. Okay? And Tsevadom, Tsevadom means red alert, happens all the time. This is what a rocket that didn't explode looks like, but they're filled with this. That's a watch from Palestinians that they put into the bombs and is in someone's neck. These are the things that doctors have to deal with on a daily basis when we're dealing with shrapnel victims. This is the kind of stuff we saw in Boston at the Boston Marathon. These are just some of the shell casings from the rockets that are... In. If you ever go to Stay Road, go to the police station, you'll see thousands of these in the back. Okay. These are kids preparing for Tsevadom and protecting themselves. Steroid used to see 25, 30, 40, 50 missiles a day on a routine basis. Now, they're still getting them, but it's very few. One or two a week, thank God. This is the psychological trauma. We always worry about the physical trauma. The psychological trauma is by a factor of 10 more people injured. And it's very hard to deal with. It could be lifelong. This is the head of Magen David Adon, whose granddaughter was just injured in Israel. 
These are women having acute stress reactions which can turn into post-traumatic stress disorder. This is a wonderful woman who is the clinical psychologist for Steyrot, and these are kids in her shelter during a bomb attack. She's trying to keep them happy and give them food and hope that the bombs stop. Okay, this is just some bad news from Steyrot about the impact. And there's no post-traumatic stress disorder in Steyrot. It's ongoing traumatic stress disorder because it doesn't stop. Should people live in Steyrot? What about the heroes who take care of them? Should they be riding around during missile attacks? Another interesting question. The kids are very, very effective. They all walk around at some point with toy kassams and they have parties with kassams. Obviously, we need a lot of psychological support. These are pictures that they draw. The quiet is broken. Here you see Army and Magen David Adom and Home Front Command helping people in on the ground. Here's a very telling one. Tzachadosh Baruch Hu, we love you. Please stop. What's going on? These are some of the heroes we encounter. These are the guys um, in the army and in the local yeshivas they wrote. These are the high school kids who helped out. This is the Magen David Adom station. We were proud enough to be able to deliver them um, special life-saving equipment. These guys get in their ambulance when there's a bombing. This is a sheltered place. They go out of that sheltered place and ride around to get to the bombing site more quickly. This is a school, which again, with Hassams in it. This is a shelter that we, our organization was able to help build during those days. They wrote was not sheltered, and that was really a failure of leadership perhaps, but now Baruch Hashem, the city is really, really very well protected, which is what Am Yisrael does. It's called Yisrael Arabian Zelazeh. And this shelter, I went to Israel, I went to uh, a school where this was on a Sunday and um, on a Monday, and we got told that the day before the children were in the parking lot, 35 some odd kids, there was a Teva Dome, they ran into the shelter, the Kassam landed where they were standing. They would have been torn to bits. You can make a difference by helping. These are some of the kids. Baruch Hashem, look pretty good. Okay, what are we taught? We already raised some questions. How do we support Steyrod? Is it safe to be there? Things to ponder, and I think we can answer those today. What about Netanya? The epicenter of place which was hit multiple times had a thousand victims come there during multiple bombing attacks, during the Intifada. And this is, the, unfortunately, the Park Hotel. Erev Pesach, Park Hotel, a lot of people there, and this is it after two suicide bombers killed 30 people. This is the surgeon, Steve Ulano, um, a graduate of uh, Einstein, who was the only surgeon on call at that time. These are a list of the people who didn't make it. So what did we do from that? Did we lay down and cry? We did, but we learned how to deal with it. Um, Boaz Todmore, then the head of the Home Front Command, worked with Lignato Hospital to develop different doctrines of triaging patients and sorting patients and getting an IVF heliport built. That's where our expertise came from, unfortunately, from these episodes, but now that is worldwide and world-renowned. Okay, can you do preparedness and be ready for this? The answer is yes. 
These are drills that take place. I'm not going to get into the complex incident command structures and all the other things that we do, but they really are effective. And Lignato has become a triage hospital that stabilizes patients and then the Air Force comes in and can move them out quickly. Okay, we're talking a lot about different places in Israel. I must say that terrorist incidents and bombings are different than regular trauma. The bottom line is we're seeing new injuries and new problems. Okay, we see a lot of shrapnel injuries and lung injuries and things that we're seeing also in the military uh, with U.S. Stroke. This is what's packed into these bombs. I have some of this at home. I was on a doctor's training mission and we were missed by Kassan by 50 yards. This is shrapnel. This is what we saw at the Boston Marathon. And that's what we have to learn to deal with. This is a metal pellet in someone's heart. This is a girl who was sitting eating pizza uh, in Yerushalayim, went into a store, suicide bomber came in, and she walked into the emergency room, although she had some injuries and it looked okay, she had a nail in her brain that she didn't realize. Baruch Hashem was found and extracted, but these are the unique kind of injuries we see. Okay, so we have to protect the population, we have to prepare for everything. These are the things that are happening in Israel today. We have earthquake preparations going on. We have hardened the hospitals. Um, Rambam Hospital just built the biggest underground hospital in the world, 2,000 beds, 1,000 for chemical weapons victim, victims. Barzilai Hospital in the south is building underground, Carmel, Naria, as well as Lignato. Magain David Dome has all kinds of special equipment. They come with protective gear so that if there's a chemical weapon, they're ready. My grandchildren just got outfitted again with gas masks, and this is prevented pediatrics, unfortunately, in Israel. Underground hospital at Lignato for dialysis unit, neonatal unit, protected ED. This is in a mountain in the north of Israel, a pediatric emergency room built into a mountain. These are special antidotes. Israel does drill after drill after drill. I was at a Homeland Security drill, which I'll show you in a minute. We're doing pediatric drills in Israel. You can see we, we mark up people. We have live victims and dolls as well. We take it very, very seriously. Every hospital goes through this, from Sharet Sedek to Adassa to Lanyado, on an ongoing basis. This is a drill we did with Homeland Security, 120 people from the United States. This is an actor playing a terrorist with a chemical weapon. He goes into the shul, shoots it up, throws the chemical weapon. First responders get in trouble. Then they call in special units. They're EPA. These are Assam units that Israel uses who are specially trained to have protective gear and take out terrorists, special forces. And that's what that drill looked like. Then we took the victims to the hospital and we had to decon them. And we have to learn how to do that. And Israel is amazing at their preparedness. If a similar episode that happened in Syria, God forbid happened, you wouldn't have the fatalities you have. You would have antidotes getting to the scene and things like that. It would be bad, but we have some degree of preparation. Uh, this is our group who volunteered to go to Israel if there is a disaster. And uh, we travel all over the country. And we <coughs> went to uh, Israel during the Second Lebanon War. This is our group in the north to try to give them chizuk. We do drills with the IDF. The IDF does amazing drills. They have their own simulation centers, and they work on this all the time. 
Here's the search and rescue mission teams. They prepare the population. There's community and city drills, gas masks, education of the population, shelters everywhere, and anti-missile systems. And at the end, what do we want to happen? We want to return to normal. Isaac Ashkenazi, head of the Home Front Command, decided if you blow up Sparrow today, terrorists, tomorrow we're going to be eating pizza in it. You lose, we win. Okay? That's the attitude we have to have. Clean up and go on with normal. Okay, what about the U.S. lessons learned from Israel? The Boston Marathon, I'll show you in a minute, we're getting close to the end, was amazing that three people died instantly. How many more died? Zero. How many people were hurt? About 250. That's incredible. The people who died at the scene were dead immediately because they, they were so injured. That's How did that happen? Okay. What do you think? First of all, there were a lot of first responders there because it was a marathon, right? That wasn't it. Okay. They were trained by Israelis two years before. Okay. I heard this on a Harvard webinar and I heard this from other people and it was also in the press. Okay. So just these are some of the things we do, but just particularly with the Boston Marathon, this poor child didn't make it, but there were others. There were almost 20 people with severe amputations. And you see them immediately putting people in the ambulances? That's Israeli. In the United States, we stay and play with victims. We put, we put IVs, we waste time. Israel, in the ambulance, life-saving, get to the hospital. I spoke to the people at Mass General. Five victims with amputations got there within three minutes, and they didn't stop in the ER. They went right to the OR, all alive. Amazing. Where's it from? Feel good. It's from, it's from us, from Eretz Yisrael. This is just some quotes about it, and people there who happen to be Israeli trained happen to be the chief at Mass General of the ER, and he said, this is the kind of stuff I see, and this is how we train, and thank God they came here two years ago. About two years ago, in Ashton Factory, we asked the Israelis to come across, and they helped us set up our disaster team. Okay? And he continued that we see this in Israel, never saw this before. And just read this, perhaps. Just read the quote from Benjamin Netanyahu to give chizuk to the United States in a reverse situation. The day of... Yeah, I'll show you. Start here. We do stand together and there's joint sessions and joint training that we do together with Israel um, and hopefully we won't need this in the future but we are doing this not only in Israel, but also worldwide. <clears throat> We're training people from Eastern Europe at Lignato Hospital Hall. A delegation was there recently in chemical weapons. Um, Madrid, England, there's something called Tale of the Cities. Dr. Ashkenazi goes all around the world, head of the Home Front Command previously, and trains people of how to deal with these mass casualty events. Israelis were at Mumbai. <clears throat> We had a conference in China that I went to. I walk into the conference, World Conference. There's like 30, 40 Israelis there. Okay, this is just an example of the drill with the uh, Eastern Europeans. 
Okay, and last but not least, which we're going to be talking about, is providing direct aid. Okay, around the world. We have enough tourists ourselves, right? What are we doing? Why, we're going to talk about this. Why are we going to Haiti? Mumbai. India earthquakes. We built a neonatal unit for India where there was an earthquake. We left them all of our neonatal equipment, incubators, etc. Okay. Kenya. There was Israelis in Kenya just now helping. Boston, we heard. Latin America. Rabbi Blau is working on, on helping people there. Africa. Because, as we'll hear, that's what we do. And it's the right thing to do. Okay. In Israel, we have a whole bunch of heroes. I'm not going to belabor it because we're running out of time. Um, we have special forces, paramedics that jump out of helicopters. We have Magen David Adam, the IDF, the Ministry of Health, Home Front Command, and these guys in general are heroes. This is a soldier who was hurt in Gaza. They said he wouldn't make it. I spoke to the neurosurgeon. He was going to let the resident do the case because he was dead. And he said, I heard in my head, Hinani Ha'ani, which he davens on Yom Kippur, like God calling to him, you're the designated one. Help this guy out. And he made it. And I had the pleasure of meeting with him and talking to him. These are the guys who jump out of the helicopters. This is Magain David Adam at Steyrod. This is Amir Blumenfeld, a colonel in the IDF who goes to every war even though he's retired. These are the people in charge of disaster preparedness. And these are the guys. <laughs> I didn't do that. And these are our soldiers. And I have no idea what that was. That worked well. Work you up. Good. Okay. And these are our graduating soldiers at Latrun who really protect and save Amis role. Thank you. <clears throat> okay, at this time, I'd like to turn the mic over to uh, Yitzhak Shalita, better known as Itik. Um, and uh, I just spoke about heroes. Uh, I'm sure it will embarrass him, but he's done amazing things. Um, he served as a volunteer for Magen David Adom and Zaka for over 10 years. He was a member of the IDF search and rescue team. Uh, he worked with the Israeli police force on fingerprint identification as an expert. And he's been on humanitarian missions in Taba, Egypt, and Thailand. Um, we want to invite him to uh, say a few words about the great work that Zaka does. Share with you a little bit of um, 
feelings and dilemmas that every Zaka volunteer has. Okay, Zaka history. Uh, July 6, 1989. It was the Eget bus number 405 on his way from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. When the bus arrived near Nebeilan, Telston, a terrorist named Abed Tel Aviv Naim walked to the driver and pulled the steering right and took the bus over the cliff. That, that was the first uh, terror attack in the Intifada in, the, in, the, in, the in Israel. The bus fall rolled down uh, the hill tens uh, of meters and burned. Part of the people that was in the bus burned alive. Part of them flew from the windows while the bus is rolling down. And uh, this um, tragedy is uh, done with 16 people that died and 27 injured. It was the first terror attack. The security forces wasn't ready um, and they didn't know how to deal with that. Ambulance came, came up in the road. Nobody knew how to go down the hill, how to help the injured people. And uh, 669 units, the IDF uh, Air Force uh, Search and Rescue Unit came uh, with helicopters and helped uh, to transfer the injured people as fast as they came to the hospital. When this job finished, done, there was a lot of uh, bodies, dead bodies down the hill and uh, body parts. Nobody knew who is their responsibility to take care of it. It was a few yeshiva boys in Telstone that saw the situation and decided to go down the hill. As you can see in the pictures, Bakhore Yeshiva, yeshiva boys, up to carry the bodies up to the road and after work hours by hours to collect the body parts. That was the point that Zaka created by spontaneous volunteers. During the years, uh, it was a lot of need and Zaka became a professional organization. The main part of Zaka is Chesed Shelemet to uh, take care of every uh, body that is, uh, everyone that died uh, in unnatural, uh, unnatural death. Because uh, the situation a lot of time when Zaka volunteers coming to the scene, there is still uh, people that injured, so everybody knows also to give the first response uh, in order to transfer the, the injured people as fast as they can to the hospital and search and rescue because a lot of time the victim is uh, in the desert, in the ocean, or it just disappeared and uh, that's why there is a tracking dogs, uh, dogs in order to search about the body. So today we'll talk about Chesed Shelemet, that's the main part of Zaka. Every natural disaster, every, sorry, every unnatural death, like car accidents, Big bodies, old people that uh, the neighbors start to smell a uh, bad smell and calling the uh, the security forces. Suicide, homicide, terror attacks, and natural disaster. In all that uh, situation, Zaka volunteers called to help. So, why Zaka doing what they doing? By the Jewish Allah, every blood 
has to be buried, every body part has to be buried, Jewish or not Jewish. It's called Dama Nefesh. You can see this is, uh, this is in Merkaz Arab, when a terrorist starts to shoot all over, with a lot of blood involved, um, need a lot of uh, hours to work. So what is Dama Nefesh? Every person that is, uh, is uh, he got injured and he's bleeding until he dies, this blood has to be buried. If the blood is stuck and he transferred to hospital and he became stuck, uh, stable, you don't have to bury this, this blood. Because in, uh, in the scene, as the volunteers, we cannot uh, try to sort if the blood is coming from someone that if he died or someone that transferred to the hospital, we're collecting the old blood uh, in the skin. The reason is, the, the main reason is because blood is uh, uh, making tumor, same as the body. And even though the Eshar Haim says that it's said to be sure, revealed some blood, of course we cannot measure in the scene if there is revealed or not revealed, so we're just collecting every blood. It doesn't matter if it happened on a, as you can see, a train that passed in a, was accident and the blood can be on miles on miles on the trucks and, and uh, the stones. Um, every time, it doesn't matter if the blood is um, on, a, on, a, sorry, on a big area, um, we have to collect the blood. We're using um, paper towels in order to observe the dump, the blood, and all these uh, paper towels, clothing, everything that there is blood has to be buried with the, with the body. The Lechatchila, we have to bury the blood with the, to match it to the body and to bury that in one, in one cavern, in one grave, since most of the time we cannot do it, especially when there is uh, few victims involved, so we're just collecting all the blood and all the pieces and we uh, bury that in a common grave. Um, so basically it's the same thing with the blood, uh, with body parts, and we have to bring uh, to be buried every, every body part. When we are coming to a scene, uh, to, the situ to a situation, First of all, of course, we're trying to see if there is people injured that we can give the first response. And as uh, Dr. Fordel uh, mentioned, the Israelis' idea is first of all to transfer them as fast as we can to the hospital. So ambulance coming and we're just pushing the injured people and uh, sending them to the hospital. After that, um, of course, we try to see that the place is secure. The crime usually is going to be a crime scene, so it's secure. If it's a terror attack, there is no more bombs. If it's a murder, to see that uh, he died. And then we come in the inside. We come in the inside, that's volunteer coming inside with the forensic. Um, the way that we're trying to work is, uh, it's called pattern method. It's to build the body uh, back to the way that it was before in order for two reasons. First of all, to help the identification and second thing, to decoding what happened. So, sometimes you can do it, sometimes you cannot do it. I remember that uh, in Cafe Lel, uh, 
in other preparation, it was a terror attack. And after we cleaned the scene and everything, and we took someone called, he lived on the third floor, and he said that he seen on his uh, balcony some pieces that he doesn't know what is. And we found there some fingers and some, so it can fly all over. And uh, in this case, of course, you cannot uh, use the puzzle method and you cannot uh, build back uh, the body. There is also a um, very important thing, uh, very important to um, take care of the same way that you that you're doing with the Jewish body, with non-Jewish body. There is few reasons. One of them is because it also uh, makes tumor, so for Kohanim. And the second reason is Dr. Shalom, because all the world seeing what we're doing. It's put out the volunteers in a lot of dilemmas. Sometimes we for example, if it's terror attack, so we're going into the scene, and usually if it's uh, with the belt bump, so the head of the terrorist is, uh, is separate, you see the head, and you know he's a terrorist, but you must take care the same way uh, with the respectful that you're dealing with the Jewish body, to put him in a, in a bag, and to be uh, sure that it's, uh, it's coming to be buried. I hope uh, that... Uh, not going to be more needs for our work, and uh, the work will be more secure. Thank you. Thank you, Yusuf. I know this is a little bit hard to, to deal with, um, but I must tell you that the people from Zaka are, are absolutely unbelievable, and they are renowned worldwide, and there's a lot of people trying to figure out what their resiliency is. Resiliency means your ability to go through a terror event and to come out at the other end without post-traumatic stress disorder and psych problems. And the Zaka people, amazingly enough, doing all this horrible work, do fine. Um, it's very hard to understand. Um, you know, soldiers come back from war, they you know, huge percentage of them have problems. These guys do this sometimes, God forbid, on a routine basis. And it's probably because they know they're doing the work of the Kaddish Baruch Hu, Fiat Torah, and um, they, they are doing things that really they deserve all the credit in the world. And I know it's hard sometimes to see and look at this, but Bezor uh, Hashem, because of the good things they do, we won't need to uh, deal with these kind of problems anymore. Um, are there any questions? Let's just take a two, one or two questions. Are there any questions at the moment? Yes. Yes. Can, can you stand up talk a little louder? Thank you. Guess what? There's a huge waiting list 
to move into Seirot now. It's building itself back. And Baruch Hashem. And you know what? They were right. People said, how can you live in Seirot? How can you have your children live in Seirot? They said, if we leave Seirot, what's next? Ashkelon, Ashkelon, Yavne. Guess what? They've all been hit by missiles. We can't, we can't leave Eretz Roll unless we make, obviously, that decision. But, you know, where does it end? Where can we live? Now we're in range from everywhere. So we need, you know, Hashkafa brought this, obviously, to help us and to save us, but uh, um, Seirot Baruch Hashem is a vibrant community now. Okay. Um, at this point, we're going to move on, and I'd like to introduce Rabbi Yosef Blau, who I remember from my days in, uh, in Reeds and at YU, um, and uh, he's been Mashiach Mukhani um, at uh, Rabbi Yosef Blau Seminary, better known as Reeds, since 1977. An amazing, wonderful career, and he's spiritual guidance counselor for Yeshiva University. And uh, of all things, perhaps that's the most important, um, to take care of the ruach of all the students. Um, and uh, uh, Rabbi Blau has a BA from Yeshiva College and also went to Delta Graduate School of Science. He's a YU guy through and through, and uh, we want to hear a few words from him about responsibilities in the world. Rabbi Blau. Clearly, <clears throat> there is a multitude of very difficult halachic shilas involved in the rescue work. And I'm only going to focus on one area. And that is how a question that Dr. Frogel asked, if the need is so great in Israel, why is he flying around the world? So I'm going to try to deal with, from a halachic and hashkafic perspective, what is the Jewish responsibility for the rest of the world? The Rambam and the Sefer Mitzvos and the very third Mitzvah said of Ahava Hashem, of obligation to love HaKadosh Baruch Hu, writes that included in this mitzvah, and I'm going to translate it since it's originally in Arabic anyway, the Hebrew is also a translation. It says, included in this mitzvah, they were obligated to try to get other people to also love Hashem. Ram points out that if we really love someone, we'd want that individual to be beloved by others as well. And the model, of course, is Avram Avinu, the Nefesh Asher Asur But if you have been following the Kriya Torah in the last few weeks, you will notice that while part of what Abraham did was to build a Mizbeach, to build an altar and to call out in the name of Hashem, 
and do it repeat many times, but he also impacted on the world by how he behaved himself. We just read of the remarkable account of his arguing with Akash Baruch to save the city of Stokes. The Nitziv, in the introduction to his Perish on Chumash on Sefer Voracious, the Ahamid Dagar, writes that the book of Voracious is called the Sefer HaYisharim, the book of the just. And who are the Yisharim? The others. Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. Why? Because that's how they dealt with the other people of the world. Obviously there was no Jewish people yet, but the just, straight, honest way in which they dealt with others reflected the highest values of what we stand for. This is translated in the Gemara in Yuma, the Peval Amir Aleph, when the Gemara discusses Kiddush Hashem and Chilo Hashem, but not in the most dramatic of fashions, of someone willing to risk his life that we associate with Kiddush Hashem, and I won't discuss not too much from just reading newspapers about what can cause Chil Hashem, but how it can be done in everyday life. The greater the individual, the higher level of responsibility, because they represent Torah, they represent Judaism, we are, and we are in many respects the representatives of Akadosh Baruch in this world. And if we act in a way that people look down upon Torah, it's a Chil Rasha. If we act in a way that causes people to admire it, it's a Kiddush Hashem. And we're not talking only about Jews. We're talking about Brios all of humankind. And it's interesting that the Gemara quotes the Raisa, connecting the Abbas Hashem that I started with with Kiddush Hashem. Abayi Yamar, Kiddusanya, Vahaftat Hashem Rokecha, Shiehei Shem Shemayim Mis'ahev Aryadecha that the mitzvah of loving God is that the name of God become beloved through your actions, the impact you have on others. The whole issue of our relationship with the rest of the world, of course, is a very complex one. We live in a world where there's a tremendous amount of anti-Semitism, I have my oldest grandson in Israel at the, at the moment is in Poland on a trip with his 12th grade class of Chorev in school in Yerushalayim visiting 
concentration camps. And the question always is, what lesson is learned from this experience? And people sometimes draw opposite conclusions. One conclusion is, the world wasn't there for us. We have to only trust ourselves with a corollary to some, we have to only care about ourselves, since no one else cares about us. And others draw the opposite conclusion, that if there could be a genocide and we were the victims, then we have to be in the forefront to assure that other people not be vi victims of genocide as well. No? The lesson of the Torah says that we have to treat specially the other, the outsider, the ger, because we were the ger because we were the outsiders in Egypt, and we know what it means. To be, to deal with a very specific halakhic manifestation of this, in the Mesechet, Gitten, a brightness was down in the Samach Aleph or Aleph, which says explicitly, Mephanesim Aniei, Akum Aniei Yisrael, Mevakum Chole, Akum Chole Yisrael, Vekobrim Nisei Akum Nisei Yisrael, Neidarte Shalom. In the same manner that we supported poor Jews, we visited the sick Jews, we bury those Jews who Rahman passed away, we have an obligation to do it with non-Jews as well. I use the word Akum and Agamar just says Nachrin, probably caused by the censors. If there are distinctions here that are important, I don't have time really to analyze When the Rambam brings this halacha down, the Rambam gives an explanation. And he quotes two biblical, two verses. Harei nemar tov Hashem la'kol v'rachamo v'akol ma'asa say nashra every day, two times that God is good to all, He has mercy in all that all those whom He has created, which implies that we're doing this not simply pragmatically, but to fulfill our obligation to emulate the ways of God. And secondly, the Ramam quotes, Drachar Noam Shalom. So we say the, way, the ways of peace, those are the ways of the Torah itself. It's not a, a concept applied in certain circumstances. It's fundamental to the path of Torah as a whole. To be fair, there are other commentaries, Tosvos, that seems to understand this in much more pragmatic terms. We live in a world if we don't behave in a certain way, we can't expect 
others to treat us the way we would like them. We would have no claim against them. There's some notion of reciprocity that operates. We want to prevent hatred of the Jews. The Mesha Chachma, I'm just going to quote a couple more sources and stop, knowing fully well that, you know, one can quote a lot of sources on any topic in Halacha, and they don't all say the same thing. And I'm being selected, obviously. The Mesha Chachma, the Arsameach, explains why if one killed, a Jew killed a non-Jew, why it's the same prohibition of murder, there's no punishment of death, not because it's less serious than killing a Jew, but on the contrary, because it's more serious. Because it also has an element of killing Hashem involved in a Jew being a murderer of a non-Jew. And therefore, since a punishment also has to be a source of kapara, a source of atonement, can't be atoned. Because it has, it's not only murder, but it desecrates God's name as well. In Shiva, so one of course has to make some reference to the writings of the Rav Zatzal based on, again, going back to Avraham Avinu, Parsha is coming up, Aisara, Avraham says, Ger Vitosha Anohi Machem, that I'm both a stranger and a citizen at the same time. And Rao points out that we have this duality. On one hand, we're part of the broader world. We have responsibilities for the welfare of the world. And we also have a unique, distinct identity that we're not prepared to sacrifice just to be part of the broader world. But we have to find a way to do both at the same time. My experience and the little bit of stuff that I've been involved in is that the students who've gone on some of these programs in Central America in areas where there are no Jews, so while I don't doubt that there's an element of Kiddush Hashem, but certainly it's you know, in some rural village in Nicaragua or El Salvador, it's not going to make a major difference. Most of the people have never seen a Jew in their life and don't know what Jews are. But it impacts on our students who participate. Not that they become any less committed to the Jewish people. They, on the contrary, they become more committed. They manage to be committed to better the world and become committed to better our people at the same time. Because if you have compassion, if you care, if you understand and recognize the needs of others, that's going to be expressed in many different ways. And if you live in a world only caught up in your own identity and your own needs, 
He won't have time for anybody else, no matter what. We live in a world that's often hostile to the Jewish people. But all the sources that I quoted are based on an assumption that what we do does matter. It's not simple, simply the law hate us anyway, nothing matters. Then there would be no concept of Kiddush Hashem and extending to others for Abbas Hashem because it wouldn't matter. Obviously, what we do does matter. It does impact on others. That doesn't mean we're going to get an immediate thank you from everyone. It's a process. The work that has been described that Israeli doctors do around the world has not significantly changed the foreign policy of any country. That doesn't mean it hasn't had an impact. It has an impact. And the people who see it, who experience it, and waves, you know, you put the pedal in the water and the waves go around and further out. We live at a time people want immediate satisfaction, immediate accomplishment, immediate change. If we learn anything, everything is a long, slow process. We have a responsibility to the world. We have what to contribute. We fulfill mitzvahs, fundamental ones, by doing so. And at the same time, of course, that doesn't lessen in the slightest our responsibility to Kalal Yisrael and to the fundamental needs of the Jewish people. Thank you. in Israel, and boy, is this guy busy, because with the polio issues, and I know there's, there's always avian flu things and other things going on when I'm there, um, so he's the guy who's making a lot of these decisions and helping protect on this world. Don't get nervous about polio, there are no human cases, um, but it, it is important to find out from your physician um, whether or not you need vaccine and, and the issues with that. But we're not going to talk about that. Uh, Dr. Schwalber, uh, has been at the finest institutes of learning literally around the world, um, whether it was um, going to Princeton uh, for his BA and then Albert Einstein, College of Medicine, uh, certainly uh, many years uh, after me, I'm sure, um, and uh, uh, then coming back, going uh, to Eretz Yisrael, making Aliyah, joining IDF, and doing a fellowship uh, at Harvard. Um, we uh, are blessed to have him, and most importantly, he's a reserve in the IDF, and he was on the Haiti mission, um, which was amazing. I, I've speaking to people who've gone to it and seen videos, and he's going to talk a little bit about um, that and what kind of ethical dilemmas that presented. Thank you very much, Sam. So it falls to me to be the one keeping it from lunch. Uh, but I also wanted to open with just a, a, a moment of Hakara Sitov, uh, first of all to the Fultz family and to Yeshiva University for allowing this day to happen, and to the Yeshiva University Student Medical Ethics Society uh, for inviting me to come. It's a tremendous honor to be here. 
And uh, particularly for the three individual students who have worked so closely with me, uh, Hannah, Kalman, and David, uh, with impeccable <laughs> impeccable efficiency and remarkable Derek Eretz. So uh, if there are YU administrators here, you're doing a good job. And um, uh, finally, I would just also like well, last word of Ankara Satov to my parents, Drs. Evelyn and Jules Schwaber, who made the trek in from Boston uh, to hear me today, leaving the city when the Red Sox won the pennant. Uh, <laughs> uh, so uh, they live in Boston, they're New York trained physicians themselves. Uh, my mother's a graduate of Einstein in the first class, and my father from Cornell Medical School. And uh, they raised me in a proper Jewish home, Zionist home, my dad. Uh, and put me through school, and when the day came to, to clue them in on my plans to make Aliyah, they not only didn't stand in my way, which I have learned uh, through the course of years is not something to be taken for granted, uh, they supported me and they continued to support me uh, every step of the way, and uh, anything that I managed to accomplish, I wouldn't have accomplished without their guidance, love, support, and role modeling. So I'm very grateful for this. I have to say a, a quick anecdote when I was about Haiti. The day I got called up to Haiti, uh, I, was, I was calling Boston. It was the afternoon Israel time, and it was uh, probably morning, uh, late morning uh, local time in Boston. And I reached my dad at work, and he, I could tell by his voice he was in unseen patience mode. And so I said, Dad, I said, it's Mitch. He said, hi, Mitch, how are you doing? He said, well, I just want to tell you, I'm, I got called up. I'm going off to Haiti. And he said, okay, well, good luck. i uh, got to go. I'll talk to you later. <laughs> and I said, okay, that didn't register. <laughs> but, you know, I had, I had things to do. It. And uh, a couple hours later, my cell phone rings, and it's my dad again. I suspect after he spoke to my mom. I said, Mitch, did you say you were going to Haiti? Uh, let's talk a little bit. So, anyway. So, is there a way to make this thing disappear? Um, so I was asked to talk about the ethical dilemmas in disaster medicine, some of the issues that arise from the, our experience uh, in the Israeli field hospital in Haiti. And uh, much of what I say, the, 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 the data that I present, so the charts and the graphs are uh, drawn from these two articles. Uh, the references are, are up here. In order to start, I need to give you some, a little bit of the background. Okay, so the, the earthquake occurred on Tuesday, January 12, 2010 at 4.53 p.m. local Haiti time. It was a 7.0 magnitude on the Richter scale and it struck near Port-au-Prince, the capital. Casualty estimates vary widely depending on the source, but the lowest estimate I've seen is 100,000 killed, which is a, 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 an order of magnitude that's really incomprehensible. On the order of 300,000 injured, over a million rendered homeless, and over 3 million people affected. The Israeli response was as follows. The earthquake struck at 11.53 p.m. Tuesday night, Israel time. I learned about it on the way to work the next morning. Uh, early Wednesday, the government made the decision to send a rescue mission, as it does in many similar circumstances around the world. Immediately, once the decision was made, uh, uh, and it was put on the army to carry it out, the questions uh, that arose were, should this be a primarily search and rescue mission or should it be a primarily medical mission? And it was decided to have components of both, but 
to put emphasis on the medical because given how far away Haiti was from Israel, as fast as we were able to get there, the search and rescue component would take second place to the need for advanced medical care by the time we would be able to arrive. So that was the first question that was addressed and dealt with. The second was, once you decide to send a medical mission, we're going to do this in the context of a field hospital, do we want to do it as a light or a heavy hospital? Light meaning you provide a broad array of first aid, of primary care, uh, to get to a lot of people. Uh, heavy meaning you're establishing a full-fledged tertiary care, as it were, a field hospital with a lot, of, uh, a lot of the advanced disciplines and machinery, and you'll be able to provide more advanced care than in a light hospital, but probably to fewer people. Given what we learned about the infrastructure on the ground in Haiti at the time as a result of the quake and even before the quake, we understood, we, the decision makers, understood that it was best to go with the heavy model of field hospital. That would be what was most, most needed. And there were search and rescue elements uh, added to the team as well. Now there, are, as I say, Israel has been involved in a lot of disaster relief around the world for, for decades. Uh, but there were unique features of the Haiti disaster. Number, first of all, the number of casualties and the scope of destruction, which was really on, on an enormous, tr enormously tragic scale. Then that happened on a baseline of underlying poverty and extremely poor infrastructure. Haiti is the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. And even at baseline before the quake, they were struggling. There was a temporary crippling of the governing authority. There were many casualties among the, the governors, uh, the, the members of parliament, and the, member, and the parliament building itself was damaged. There was no military in Haiti. And a lot of times in national emergencies, the military takes control. And the IDF, when it comes, liaises with the local military. But in Haiti, there is no military. And there was a temporary crippling of existing medical facilities. So medical care such as it existed in impoverished Haiti before the quake were temporarily put out of work. Uh, they, they, they were damaged, and doctors were injured, staff was injured. They, they, were, they were crippled uh, uh, in a way that made a lot of what would normally be available in Port-au-Prince incapacitated. As a result, we were charged with establishing an advanced, functioning, self-sufficient medical facility in a background of chaos and overwhelming need. And when I say self-sufficient, I mean entirely self-sufficient. We have to get there on our own, set up on our own, provide our own food, water, sanitation, hygiene, electricity, everything. This is the timeline. Uh, so uh, the earthquake starts here on January 12th. Preparations start almost immediately. This is the special assessment team that goes out early Wednesday. Um, this is a few members of the IDF uh, who I, I borrow a pasuk uh, from Parshat Vayigash. Their job was essentially the Horod Lepanav Goshna. They were to get on the ground in Haiti, however they could, and liaise with the local authorities, at such as they were, with the Israeli diplomatic mission in, in Santo Domingo, which is responsible for Haitian affairs, to find the local Jews, and there are local Jews everywhere, you just got to know how to find them, and they did, and it turns out that the soccer field where we set up shop at Farfield Hospital was owned by a local Jew who made it available for our use. Uh, so they got on the ground and, the, and started feeding information back to us to help with our preparations. Meantime, Wednesday, the call-ups start. I get my call Wednesday afternoon. Uh, I, they want me to come as an infectious disease specialist in, in the field hospital team. I say, fine, when do I have to report? They say, in an hour. Uh, 
So I call home and say, honey, look, I, I got called off Medellin. Uh, uh, I, I got to go to Haiti. Uh, okay. My wife's Israeli. She didn't understand the question. She said, the IDF is calling you up and you're calling to ask permission? Uh, so, so I was able to go in, get initially signed up, go home to sleep, and then Thursday morning we all reported at 7 a.m. And Thursday was spent getting our shots, uh, getting briefed on what was going on, and uh, putting together all the equipment that we were going to be needing. Thursday night, late Thursday night, early Friday morning, two LL jets take off, one carrying all of the cargo and the other carrying all the personnel. Uh, we land Friday afternoon, Haitian time, uh, and make our way over to the soccer field two kilometers away. Uh, we have Kabbalah under the lights that were put up by our staff uh, as, as, as night fell. Uh, cargo plane lands in the middle of the night, and once the equipment arrives at the field, we're awakened and start setting up. So that uh, the, the startup assembly happens before dawn, and the first patient is admitted at 10 a.m. Saturday morning. A total of 89 hours from the quake, and so we were operational, ready to go. In terms of the numbers, there were 230 personnel. 121 of us were medical, consisting of doctors, nurses, technicians, and auxiliary personnel, and 109 logistical security uh, detail, search and rescue, uh, and other logistical envelopes. Our hospital capacity was 72 inpatient beds, and we also had an outpatient clinic tent uh, to enable us to treat patients with, who were not hospitalized. This is the, the functional chart, the way it looked. These were the broad disciplines, medicine, surgery, orthopedics, pediatrics, OBGYN, the ambulatory clinic, and an auxiliary services that consisted of a lab, medical supplies and engineering, x-rays, a mental health support team, informatics, and logistics. There was an adult ICU, there was a neonatal ICU, uh, and there was a labor and delivery room tank. This is what it looked like from the air, uh, surrounded by a wall. The, the patients who, were, who entered the compound would go into the triage tent and uh, wait uh, for a bed to become available. Then they would enter, and here was the adult uh, medical wards, uh, the emergency and inpatient wards on the opposite side of pediatrics, emergency and uh, inpatient, uh, the neonatal ICU, the OBGYN compound over here, and these three surface tents, the uh, operating room, the recovery and ICU, and the orthopedics area. Here is the imaging, there are the labs. The Colombian military medical team joined us and were able to augment our, uh, our capability and we were able to provide them with a logistical background. Uh, equipment and informatics tents and here is where we slept and ate over here. In terms of the numbers, we were functioning for 10 days. 1,111 patients were treated, 737 were admitted, 17 died. Uh, 16 births, uh, four of them were premature, and there were 242 surgical procedures. Now you may ask, how, how is it that, uh, that so few died? Well remember, we're starting on Saturday. Uh, the patients who felt the full brunt of the injuries uh, wouldn't have made it that far if they, if they had torso injuries. So by the time that the ones that were, are coming to us are patients who had primarily limb injuries, who had been crushed under buildings, trapped, and either pulled from the rubble and brought directly to us or brought from other very rudimentary field hospitals for more advanced care. 
This is the IDF Surgeon General at the time addressing us at Ben Gurion Airport before our departure and giving us the commands and the orders for our mission. And one of the things he said then was, well, among your orders is to save as many lives as possible. And at the time I heard it, I thought, well, that's trivial. Of course, that's what we're going to be doing. I mean, you don't need to spell that out. Only when I was there and thought about it afterwards did I realize that that actually has a different kind of meaning in a disaster scenario than it does in civilian life. If you look at the World Medical Association statement on medical ethics in the event of disasters, it says the following: the physician must act according to the needs must act according to the needs of the patient and the resources available. He or she should attempt to set an order of priorities for treatment that will save the greatest number of lives and restrict morbidity to a minimum. Well, in civilian life, uh, we've heard praise as justified praise for the short amount of time that patients wait at chariotetic emergency room. Uh, but anybody, even if a patient's waiting on the longer end of that short scale, they know they're going to be seen. And the doctors and nurses in that emergency room know that they're going to be treating everybody. And this is one of the fundamental tenets that we take with us to work every day. And this is turned on its head in a disaster scenario in a field hospital where you have limited supply and unlimited demand. And to put this uh, order operational required a kind of paradigm shift of the way many of us think, and it was not easy to do, and it remains difficult uh, to, uh, to cope with. This order has ramifications in conception and planning of the field hospital, which we already talked about, in triage, deciding which patients are going to get in, in the management of the patients that have already been admitted, in discharge, and, and making decisions about discharge, and finally in wrapping up and deciding when it's okay to fold up shop and go home. So we'll start with considerations in triage. The dilemma is that not everyone who arrives can be given care, not what we're used to. And also, those with the most urgent needs, paradoxically, are often those who require the greatest expenditure of resources, meaning that that, that necessity comes at the expense of others, we may have to turn some away in order to not compromise our ability to, to carry out an order of saving as many lives as possible, particularly those who we would not be able to save, despite expending enormous amounts of energy and resources into helping them, we ultimately would not be able to save them. How did we do this? Our approach was that at the front of the compound there were, there were uh, senior physicians assigned to triage and uh, to work with the security detail and determine who could come in. Fortunately, I was not one of those. I don't know how I would be able to cope. There were senior personnel from Shari Tedek who were involved in this. And uh, they had to determine who would be let in. The decision algorithm was, first of all, to assess how urgent is the patient's condition. Is this patient going to get better even if he doesn't come into us? But assuming that the patient's condition was urgent, do we have adequate resources to treat this patient? Third, if we do treat this patient, will we save his or her life? Are we reasonably sure that we will do that? And finally, at what cost in terms of care not offered to others? And this is always coming up. So there are heart rates in this kind of approach. First of all, crush injuries. We had no dialysis machines. To run hemodialysis, you need running water. And we didn't have that. There, these patients would have a low chance of survival in the face of a condition called rhabdomyolysis, myelitis, which is muscle breakdown that causes kidney injury. And the 
extra sort of tragic paradox that sometimes these patients would come in appearing healthy. And we know that they could be kept alive were they to be offered dialysis, but we didn't have dialysis to offer them. Similarly, brain or spinal injuries, we had no neurosurgical capabilities, we had no CAT scanner, we had no rehabilitation facilities. And we were the best game in town at that time. People showing up at our compounds who had these kinds of injuries, we knew that we couldn't save them, and we knew that if we took them in, it would come at the expense of people that we could save. And I, people who were involved in triage told me afterwards in the debriefing sessions that we, can, that we carried out, one doctor said to me, and he's the chief of an ER at a big hospital, said, I still see their eyes looking at me, the patients that we turned away. Now, there was one exception to this, and that would be if there was a heroic rescue after days under the rubble. Remember, we came there on Saturday. We started up on Saturday. There were patients being brought to us in the first few days who had spent the entire time under the rubble and were pulled out heroically and brought to us, barely alive. In those two scenarios, we just said it's not humane to turn this person away. So those patients would be brought in, even though we knew that we had only a minimal chance of saving them. Once the patient was in, the, the ethical dilemmas didn't end at that point. There were considerations in post-admission management. Here's the dilemma. You have limited ICU resources. You have four ICU beds with ventilators. One of them is automatically designated as the post-op recovery bed. So that brings us down to three. We have neonatal ICU resources that are even more limited. If we use these resources for the most critical patients, that could neutralize them for long periods at the expense of others in need. So what do we do? Again, a prioritization scheme. For ICU beds, they would be designated for the patients who could be stabilized and therefore withdrawn from ICU care within 24 hours. The implication here is that hospitalized patients deemed unlikely to survive were generally not admitted to the ICU because those capabilities needed to be running at maximal efficiency. To address these kinds of issues, online inaction our uh, commander of the, of the hospital set up uh, what, we called, what we called ad hoc ethics committees. This was what a decision made on the fly. The committees would consist of three senior physicians put together at the time uh, who were not the patient's primary provider, not the person who was initially uh, and, and, over, and throughout the time that the patient was there taking care of. On hearing the details of the case that the primary physician would present, to the ethics committee, the committee would render a binding, documented decision on the course of action. And as a result, that relieved the individual physician of the burden of determining a patient's fate, and it didn't leave that in any one person's hands. Finally, discharge. We have considerations on discharge. The dilemma, well, uh, from the initial hours of the operation, our hospital was at full capacity. Now, you could take the approach of some of the other hospitals, well, we're full, we'll just say, as a patient goes, we'll take another patient in. And that's just the way it's going to be. But we had the command to save as many lives as possible. And there was unlimited need just outside our gates, particularly in the initial days. So in order to accommodate new patients, we would have to discharge current patients, otherwise it would quickly deteriorate into chaos. So this was on a one-to-one -one basis. And it required us to adopt a policy, again, something very, very uncomfortable for many of us, a very early discharge, far sooner than would be acceptable in routine circumstances. 
especially since we knew that in the initial post-quake period, there was inadequate post-discharge medical resources in the community. So it's not like we could say, all right, you know what? I would love to discharge you tomorrow, but I'm pressured today. Go to your family doctor. There was no such thing at that point in Haiti. So we knew that we were discharging them very, very much suboptimally. What did we do? Well, for one thing, in order to take off the pressure of not, letting, not being able to let anybody in until we had a bed empty, we had this triage tent. And so for those who were already deemed as people that we could help and needed to help, they would be allowed into the wait, the triage area, the waiting area, and know that they were just waiting now for a bed to open up. If it was clearly life-threatening, they would come in right away if it was an emergency. But otherwise, they would wait in the, in the uh, admission tent and wait for a bed to, be, to open up. But in the meantime, their basic needs, food, water, sanitation, hygiene, were attended to. For those being discharged, for one thing, it wasn't enough to give them a prescription pad and say, go fill this at the local pharmacy, no such thing. So we brought oral antibiotics with us. And when the supply plane came in the middle, we had, we had replenishment of, of those antibiotics. And we gave instructions provided. And this, uh, even that changed along the way. I remember on the first afternoon explaining in broken French to a sister of a, of a young boy that I was discharging how she should make, keep the oral antibiotic syrup that I was giving her in the refrigerator before, uh, in between doses. And she looked at me funny, and I, I, I realized that I was using the right word for refrigerator in French. It was that there was no such thing as a refrigerator. I don't know if it was as a result of the earthquake that there was no electricity, or they never even had electricity to begin with. But clearly, medications that would have to be refrigerated on opening, or else they would spoil, were not to be used. So we have to even uh, come up with alternative plans there, including crushing up pills and having them dissolve in water. Not ideal, but that was the best we could do under the circumstances. Patients who went out were given a written and electronic medical record on a disc uh, with their x-rays provided. And we also had this ambulatory clinic tent that allowed us to uh, see patients who we wanted to send out, but we wanted to still follow up on their wounds as long as we were around. So we would say, come back the next day, show this letter, and you'll be led in a triage, and then you can be seen by the ambulatory staff. And when necessary, patient exchanges were arranged. So if the ambulance or another hospital uh, called and said, look, we want you to take this patient, we said, fine, but we have a patient that you need to take out uh, in exchange who is ready to be relieved of our care, but still needs care. Uh, and so that was some of the arrangements we worked out. And as a result, over 100 patients could be treated per day on average. Uh, in many cases, we did the discharge planning. This young man here, this is me by his side, uh, he's 16 years old at the time. You can see that his uh, arm is in a cast, his leg is bandaged. This is on the day that we're holding up shop, and, and, and he is well enough to go home, to be discharged. He's 16 years old, he lost 11 family members, he's alone in the world, and his only possessions are what he's wearing. And they say, okay, you're well enough to go. So somebody finds me and says, look, uh, can you uh, help here? And uh, you become a quick social worker and, uh, and, and, and a, try to be as resourceful as you can. I go around the camp, I find who's, which volunteer nurses are, all, are around, who is the best connected, who knows who, ask a bunch of questions, and ultimately I'm led to this guy, an American uh, missionary named Grant who has an orphanage outside the earthquake zone. And he brings his Creole-speaking pastor and they talk to this boy and in his language and offer him to come to them, to the orphanage, and he agrees, and that story has a happy ending because he did very well there. 
Finally, and this is the end, when can you ethically wrap up an operation like this? So we say our goal is to arrive as quickly as possible to deliver life-saving care and to remain as long as we're needed, meaning as long as we're providing a unique service. Now there were other countries with much more advanced equipment and much, much bigger, uh, not necessarily more advanced, but uh, able to provide it on a much larger scale. And so uh, they just took longer to get there. Our approach was to have a replacement team on the ground in Israel appointed and ready to come if we outlive our, our term of duty, but we need the hospital to maintain functioning. There was another team ready to come. We also maintained daily contact with UN and other international medical forces on the ground to know when the Port-au-Prince medical system would be sufficiently up and running and when other hospitals would be there ready to, 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 to do their stuff. Once sufficient medical teams and resources were deployed, we coordinated with these teams for an orderly transfer of our patients to them uh, so that uh, those who were ready to go could go home and those who weren't ready to go home would be able to be transferred in an orderly fashion to other medical sources. Uh, and so at, at we ultimately didn't need to call in the replacement team. Um, and finally, uh, it, it opened with Hakar Satov, so I just want to close with a one-minute anecdote about Hakar Satov on the receiving end. Just two weeks ago, I was in Boston, and I got into a cab on the way to the airport, and the cab driver had a Caribbean accent. And I said, are you from Jamaica? And he said, no. I said, well, you must be from nearby. He said, I am from nearby, I'm from Haiti where well, he left 30 years ago. I said, well, I was in Haiti uh, once after the earthquake. And he said, are you from Israel? Now, I didn't tell him that I was going to Israel. I was wearing a hat over my kippah, and it wasn't, certainly wasn't my accent that gave me away. <laughs> I said, how did you guess? He said, well, you said you were there after the earthquake. Everyone knows Israel was the first one there. Thank you very much.